0: Sports Science for Self-Defense with Tony Torres on this episode of The Fight Focus. What's up, everybody? Buck Grant here. Tony is a returning guest on our show. With his over 35 years of experience in the world of self-defense and martial arts, we discuss the neuroscience of fighting particularly how sport research has affected our understanding of violent encounters. We discuss what jiu-jitsu is right for self-defense right off the gate. This is a topic that we talked about in the last podcast and we wanted to kind of finish it up. What type of jiu-jitsu and then what kind of instructors will be best for your goals? How rules create the doctrines that we follow. Doctrine was a big topic on our last um, podcasts, And then we talk about how rules make those occur. The arrogance of modern progress. And this came up as a topic um, comparing, once again, sports science, things like the kipping and butterfly pull up, for example, from CrossFit or the Fosbury flop of the high jump and how these um, modern progresses help us game our objectives, but perhaps don't help us create the... Um, the results we want for our objectives, how to develop the quiet eye. This is a reference to Dr. Jane Victor's work on precognitive processing. How do bad guys really punch in violent encounters and much, much more. We are sponsored by, or this episode is brought to you by, the Primal Edge MMA Retreat, where Tony will be co-teaching with me. Go to www.buckgrant.com and check out the Primal Edge Retreat. We are leaving December 1st, getting back on the 8th. We'll be in Nosara for the entire week, training, um, getting a chance to eat really clean food, be outdoors, be around great people. It's a great opportunity to kind of recharge your battery. If you want to go, go to uh, the Primal Edge Retreat at www.buckgrant.com. We have three spots left, so if you want to come, act on that right away. You are also brought to you by Aperture Fight Focus. Go to www.aperturefightfocus.com. Check out the Aperture Academy online training library, which includes downloadable courses and material from myself, Ryan Hoover, Eli Knight, Jared Wihongi, and Amber Seklinski. Aperture Fight Focus, welcome to the renaissance of combat. Without further ado, here is Tony Torres on this episode of The Fight Focus. What's up, everybody? This is Buck Grant. I'm here at The Fight Focus. I am back with my old friend Tony Torres, back to share his wealth of knowledge. He's just coming back from a training uh, trip um, with his j- jiu-, jiu-, jiu instructor, and yep. uh, we've got some insight on some things we we didn't get a chance to cover in the last one. So, first of all, you had, I'm assuming you had a great training experience there.
1: Oh, of course. Yeah, I always do. Uh, Ryan Young and Kama Jiu Jitsu, they're, they're uh, top notch. And again, they specialize. I always seek out the instructors that specialize in, in uh, using Gracie Jiu Jitsu for self defense, slash the Valley Tudo aspects of Jiu Jitsu, where it's you're actually using it for a fight where you know somebody's punching your face in. Uh, you're learning how to deal with with weapons and, and all these other things.
0: So, mm. so that comes into like a really good question. Is like, how do you, in this day and age with, you know, when you and I first heard about Jiu Jitsu, it was so new. I mean, our instructor, like Frank Cucci was like, yeah. he was a blue belt and that was like a god on the East coast yeah, yeah. of the <laughs> United yeah. States. Yeah. And now, like, you know, there's black belt on every, seems to be on every corner. And, uh, well,
1: there, there's a couple of things that go with that. So remember back in our day when we first started, again, you guys really jumped into it with both feet. I, because of all my other things that I had going on at the time, it took me another extra 15 years before I seriously started getting into jiu-jitsu. But, uh, and, and that's why I had to be a little bit more selective. Uh, on who I wanted to train with. But back in that day, even the few classes that I would go to, jiu-jitsu was focused on how to use it in real fighting, you know, because in those days, you know, we're talking, what, 93, 94, just, you know, uh, just right after the Ultimate Fighting Championship, the first one, the first UFC, so everybody was focused on those aspects of jiu-jitsu way back in those days. And the guys that were lucky enough, like uh, our instructor, David Kama, uh, now the, the, the uh, head of Kama Jiu-Jitsu, you know, he had been training already. By 1993, he had already been training for five, six years. So he was already like a purple belt and, and things like that. So those guys back then, a blue belt or a purple belt, were like, oh, yeah, Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, now, as you said, there's black belts everywhere, but what kind of black belts are they? You know, and and uh, that's where things started getting a little bit uh, kind of strange. As far as being able to find jiu-jitsu that you can actually directly apply for self-defense, and even an instructor that focuses on how to use jujitsu for self-protection, etc. So you're looking at... Uh, now although there's almost a brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt in just about every corner you know that it's kind of like starbucks now
0: you know
1: uh-huh. a jiu-jitsu school everywhere then what you're looking at is you know even even on that uh and what what is, what is the term that that uh the food nuts like to use now they have uh you have uh Locations in in the area where you have uh, localized starvation because there's no access to real healthy food. Mm -hmm. You know, though you have a supermarket or you have this and that and the other, there's really no access to good food, right? There's access to restaurants and everything, but there's no access to good food. So the same thing happened with jujitsu for self-protection. There's plenty of jujitsu out there and, 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 we'll talk about the evolution of, of how tournament jujitsu kind of went into the mess that it is now. And and again, I'm not uh, begrudging that or anything like that. If people want to do jujitsu for tournaments, that's their prerogative. It's, it's good for you. It's good for your health. Any athletic endeavor other than sitting on your couch eating potato chips is, is always good. But the message can be confused, uh, when you're training, uh, for the pure, uh, purpose of sport so if we go back even before uh, jiu-jitsu made its way back to the United States if we look at the way tournaments used to be looked at even in the the days of uh, uh, Elio Gracie's uh, senior students etc like you draw it uh, Roberto Bajeto and and those guys um, people would train jiu-jitsu for self-defense and they would train all year round the same way, trying to deal with, uh, you know, somebody trying to beat them up. Or they would train it uh, for Balatuda. In other words, they would train, built into Jiu-Jitsu was this asymmetrical training protocol. Is How do we use Jiu-Jitsu to defeat a boxer or a guy that's coming at us with capoeira or whatever, whatever uh, they were facing at the time? So... Built into the protocol of jujitsu, there was already a way of how do we use this to beat other people. And then every once in a while, uh, once or twice a year, they would have inner school tournaments. And everybody would get together and they fight with each other and, and they would figure out. And in some of those tournaments, some striking was allowed and some of them they weren't. And then when the Jiu Jitsu Federation started, they said, well, what's the first thing, if we want to make this a, a sport, that more people would participate, then we have to do the same thing judo did, which is we're not going to let you hit anybody. It, everything's going to be grappling based. Mm-hmm. So once that started and the the whole mentality is, Hey, if our school does some mm-hmm. good, in the, then we can get more students. Then it became a focus is how do we win this tournament? So the, the self defense just slowly kind of like, uh, you know the boiling frog analogy. Just very slowly, the self-defense aspects of jiu-jitsu started kind of falling down by the wayside. And uh, again, uh, the reason I use the boiling frog analogy is because if it had happened all of a sudden, if somebody had said, "Oh, we're taking the self-defense out and we're just going to do this sport jujitsu or whatever," then every, you know some people would have raised their hand and, and there would have been protests and you know things would have been a little bit more noticeable, but it, it eroded it so slowly, you know, little by little. All the aspects that were part of judo before, uh, where they were striking, there was you know uh, emphasis on, on throwing, effectively using elbows, headbutts, knees, and defending yourself properly, and those things. They slowly started falling by the wayside when everybody was just concentrating in winning a tournament, winning a tournament, and When you start focusing on winning a tournament, then and nobody's punching you in the face, nobody's elbowing you or grabbing you by the throat, then you start modifying your tactics and your techniques and your doctrine and your protocol to win more tournaments, and that ends up affecting everything. That doesn't mean that somebody that trains strictly in tournament jiu-jitsu is always going to lose a fight, because... You still have conditioning, you still have athletic ability and all these things that you develop from doing tournament-type Jiu-Jitsu.
0: Yeah, live energy resistance, all that stuff, yep.
1: All those things will help you indirectly, but you may also be getting into some habits that the day that you find out that your habits are wrong is, is not the day to really find that out, which is in a real fight, you realize that, you know, going for that leg lock maneuver out of the blue is getting you punched in the face, and it only takes one punch in the right part of your jaw to shut down everything else.
0: You know? Yeah, and people forget, man. Like how much, you know, throughout history, our environment has changed our behavior and our doctrines, and in almost every endeavor that you can think of, and. It baffles me when a person can like look at a, like an art like jujitsu, for example. I and mean, if you haven't done any of the history, you look at it now and you see what the sport is. It baffles me that someone can't look at that and go, "Well, the sport is that way because people have learned how to game the rules of engagement." It's like, okay, if these are the rules and these are the these are the um, the things that we're shooting for, then how do we best win that game? Not necessarily how do I. Win a fight, like exactly. anything that we do, right? Basketball, any sport you talk, you think about.
1: The rules, the rules create the doctrine. Basically, the, the rules of engagement are going to create your your doctrine that you're going to use to effectively uh, win that particular game or sport or match, etc. So, which brings me to one of the notes that I put on there. It's, it's uh, I, I put a note. It's the arrogance of modern progress, right? there's an assumption that just because we're evolving things and in certain areas they work better, there's an assumption that that's definitely better than the way it was uh, being done before. So, let, so uh, what I'm saying is not that progress is bad. Progress is good, but we have to look at progress with an educated eye and see what happens. So the example I want to use is an example that I've heard uh, a bunch of people use. I've used it myself, uh, but we have the uh, the the, uh, the example of the infamous Fosbury flop. Uh, I've heard Tony Blauer use it. I've heard Mick Coop use it. I've heard a bunch of people use it. And like I said, I've used it myself. But then I take that apart and go, but let's look at it this way. So let's I'm going to review real quick, again, not to, uh, this is all, uh, based, based on sports and, and training methodology. So back in the day, the high jump, you know, they would set a bar and you would run at the bar and, you know, you would try to clear it with both feet as best you can, you know, and somebody set the record. Somebody was the best that, that could clear the bar with both feet like that. Right. And then some guy said, well, what if when I jump, I kind of separate my legs a little bit like this. And that added a few inches to the jump. And uh, then another guy said, well, if I jump and I come around and I put kick one leg over and then the other leg over, you know. So they're still fairly erect, but they, they take kick one leg and then the other leg. And then they got a certain more amount of height than that. And then somebody became the best at that. And then some guy said, well, if I run at it, but I put the opposite leg first, so I go over, kind of like kicking, almost like doing a butterfly kick over this thing, I can jump even higher. And then some guy figured out, well, if I just throw my upper body over, and eventually the infamous phosphory flop, which is a technique that's mostly approved now, for or mostly used now, for the high jump, it's kinda of like a running at the thing and you're going backwards with your back to the bar and you flop over the bar. So everybody goes, Great, you know, that so that means that everything we do that's new, is just better and better and better. So I used to use that example as well, but then I started thinking about it and I was like, wait a second. I looked at the the first guy that was jumping was jumping over the bar and would lay on the other side unassisted or whatever and even the guy that was doing you know so a couple of evolutions later the guys that were kind of flipping over the the bar with the leg over like this and then the other leg but they were kind of sitting up they were landing on the other side basically on their feet relatively unassisted but then by the time the Fosbury flop and all these other modern things started happening to get just more height more height what's on the other side of the high jump now
0: big old pad
1: a giant pad that catches you so for all practical purposes the high jump became a specialty that only works well I mean if you all of a sudden to save your life had to jump over a fence <laughs> would you trust yourself to go over that fence by go turning your back and throwing your back and your head over that fence
0: yeah
1: absolutely not it's no, completely no. Practical at mm-hmm. this point, and it became a specialization now in the Olympics. And sure, those guys can clear seven, eight feet, whatever they're jumping at now, but it's a very specialized skill that has no, absolutely no uh, reflection of real life. Yeah. Which that's what the Olympics used to be. It used to be things that you needed for to be a soldier in battle or you know, to survive in, in that era. So, so we became, so we are adapting all these tactics, these tactics, but then we have to realize just because something is new doesn't mean that it's practical or applicable to what we're going to do. So we have to be a little bit more careful to just go, well, this is the way it's done now. So it must be the best way.
0: Yeah. it's like even, then, um, that's but- what's
1: happened uh the jujitsu.
0: Yeah. I mean, even if you look at like something like um, CrossFit, for example, you know, you got, you know, the it went from, you know, a pull up to now it's a kipping pull up to now it's a butterfly pull up. And, you know, if you think about on a practical standpoint, the pull up was basically, you know, if I need to jump over a wall to get away from you know, someone chasing me or grab a tree branch to get away from a freaking tiger in order to get out of, you know, danger. Then, you know, that was a practical movement. But now that you have this, like, you know, fishing out of dead water thing, which I think is, a you know, as an art is beautiful. But, like, there's no functional application outside of CrossFit for a butterfly pull-up. But it's something that progressed over the, the for the idea of, like, OK, well, this game was first, like, OK, who, who's the fittest athlete? How can we make the fit? Who's the strongest, fittest athlete on the planet? OK, we're going to say is a CrossFitter. That person is stronger across broad domains and whatever. But now that we have an actual sport and a game and we have you know, money on stake now, how can we gain this in order to get better? Now we're going to create this movement that has nothing to do really with the original movement. But now we're going to say that this innovation is the new standard. And now you go to any CrossFit gym and everybody's butterfly kipping to do a pull up. I was like, what is that going to do for you in the real world? Maybe there's sure there's going to be some athletic carryover, but it's not going to have the same carryover as what the original pull up had.
1: And then, if you if you look at which one, who are the athletes that would use a pulling up motion the most in all of sports? Who do you think is the athletes that use the, the pulling up motion the most? Mm. Gymnasts, gymnasts, yep, ours so and stuff like that. You watch them train; you don't see any of them doing butterfly pull-ups at all. They all do super strict pull-ups. So these are the athletes that would have the most use. To being able to hang into a bar and do flippity flop things in the world, you know the guys that would have the most use of doing something fancy, hanging onto a bar, and what kind of pull-ups they do, they do super strict pull-ups every time.
0: Mm-hmm. Know? Yeah, makes sense, man. So yeah, people need to be you know very you know careful about you know innovation and is innovation actually going in the direction that we actually uh, wanted to go, and I guess that. It kind of comes down to like, what do you want your jujitsu to be, right? Like if you're, if you know that you're doing it for sport, yeah, sure. Go to town, go do the inverted to stuff. Go for
1: that person that's going to let you coach you in that, but that's the thing. So we have the, these, uh, these dry pockets where there's not enough, even though there's, you know, jujitsu instructors all over the world and just about every corner. The dry pocket now is, you know, the the, the drought is in where are the instructors that specialize in self-defense and not even just specialize that only teach strictly jiu-jitsu for self-defense. And those are much harder to find.
0: Yeah. And, you know, like I, you know, I got my black belt in jiu-jitsu in September. I, you know, I learned a lot of the self-defense stuff when we were with Frank Cucci and Lynx Academy in Virginia Beach and all that. And um, I thought it was a good start. As far as like the grappling aspect of it, I, I'll, I'll flat out tell people that I I teach jujitsu primarily for as a as a as a movement practice that can go in any direction, whether it be sport or self defense or sure. MMA. I don't specifically focus on Brazilian jujitsu self defense because I I feel like I've been exposed to other things that sure. do it better, but. I also base my jujitsu based on the fact that like, I know what it's like to be punched in the head when I'm on the ground going for something, and I have a ... I can discern between a technique like that's probable to work against someone trying to actually hurt me and probably isn't possible at all. But I, I don't fool people, say, oh, like we're a self-defense Brazilian jiu-jitsu school, because that's not really not my It's not my interest to use that modality specifically for that. But there are people out there, like you're saying, that 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 use that. What are some of the main differences you've noticed in the type of training, like in a, in a typical training environment there?
1: So it's it's all about uh, distance management, standing up, and on the ground as well. So understanding that uh, when you're when you're trying certain maneuvers on the ground, you're exposing yourself, whether you're on top or on the bottom on the ground. Trying certain things on the ground when you're when uh, when you're on the ground will create. Uh, artificial distances that that don't relate to or they, they don't lend themselves very well to you not getting your face punched in mm-hmm.
0: so, yeah you know,
1: and so and and of course the the idea that there might be weapons involved so the awareness of where the hands are at all times uh, maintaining control of the other person's posture especially here in the bottom and how to take advantage of that you know how to create different uh Different feels and looks that make the person create space for you so that you can apply your tactics or get up You know then having a a a protocol for you know, what's your mission when you're on your back? Yeah, you know if 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 you're in sport, let's say I'm in a a sport competition, you know, and I'm fighting uh, you know, I'm on my back you know if so one of the things is, you know, I want to submit first and maybe not get my guard pass or something like that. Uh, whereas in a in a uh, self defense scenario is how do I get off my back right now, and uh, how do I do that intelligently and safely, you know, and and then if I can't get off my back, how do I put this guy? How do I reverse? So if I can't get off my feet or uh, or get get back on my feet from this position. How do I make it so that this guy is not on top of me? That's... And then, if I can't make any of those things, then I'm gonna try to win the fight from my back. Whereas, somebody might say, well, why not try to win the fight from your back? And do you, you know, to people that say that, is that you realize how hard it is? Like, one of the hardest things to do is submit somebody from your back. If you get to so uh, good, Good enough that you can submit somebody from your back, then in the timeline of things that have, are happening, you've missed a lot of opportunities to get up off your back.
0: Yeah.
1: So, yeah. so prioritizing the strategy based on the doctrine of self-defense, it it's, it changes everything. You know, whereas if if I'm in a tournament, then I might go for those crazy grips and maybe I'm trying to submit the guy and doing you know, spending all that time there. So I, I that doesn't mean we don't learn that. Sure. It's we learn all that stuff, but then we prioritize it differently.
0: Yeah. And I found that, you know, like I said, fighting MMA, it was kind of one of those things, like for me, no matter what belt I ever had on my waist, everybody was like, Oh Bucks the striker, so we're gonna take him down and and you know, beat him off his back or whatever. And it was never it that 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 um, hierarchy that you talk about became a natural order of progression. It's like, I don't want to be on my back. I'm trying to get back up. If I can, I can put him on his back so that a fight's more in my favor. And then if if an opportunity pops up to submit, then I'm going to do so. But it was always like, okay, get back to your feet if you can. Get back to your feet if you can. And I find that even in sport jujitsu, having the impetus to try to get back to your feet forces the person on top of you now to have to hold you down rather than just by default be on top. And it exactly. even opens up their sport game, so yeah. I, I I kind of make it makes sense to me.
1: No, absolutely, it does. So one one of the things I was going to uh, address with the the whole you know how everybody has this lens that, or I shouldn't say everybody. I I hate generalizations, but the the general perception is, hey, because it's more new, it's evolving, so it's better. So let's look at you know the way, you know, because some people throw comparisons, well, cars are now much better than they were 100 years ago, and, or computers are, not, are now better than they were 50 years ago. So they always use, throw those analogies out there. And I like to bring up to people how, you know, analogies aren't always, you know, th- those analogies aren't always accurate, because, sure, cars didn't exist 100 years ago or 110 years ago, whenever cars were invented. So yeah, they're naturally better, but fighting has existed for several tens of thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So there's not a lot around that we can do, and we'll get to that. There there are some things we can do. We're gonna get into some of the newer science and and how that that you know becomes a, a lot better now. But th- there's a lot of things we can do, but there's n- really not a lot new under the sun that human beings haven't figured out how to do to each other really well in order to hurt each other. Yeah. So you know, fighting's been around for, for tens of thousands of years, several several hundred thousand years. So that there you know, to for us to think in our measly, you know, fifty some odd years on Earth on this planet, or in our the measly, you know, however many years your martial arts been around that we're gonna come up with every oh yeah everything we do now is much better than what was been done before you gotta remember that premise that I think I shared it on, on our most recent podcast which is people really don't like to die or lose fights <laughs> uh, so if, if they were doing a lot of things hundreds of thousand years ago that were losing fights trust me evolution has taken care of that natural selection has taken care of that and eliminated so for example, the myth of you know uh, punching, you know, it's like, oh yeah, you should never punch because you'll break your hand. It's like, okay, in the history of punching, however long it's been around, and how many humans throw punches on a daily basis, and you actually compare that to hand injuries, you realize that there's not that many. Sure, if every day, all day long, you're practicing punching and you spar with punching, and then you get into fights frequently, sure, you might end up at some point injuring your hand, but you gotta look at this. You know, the one time that you injured your hand, how many punches did you throw before that actually happened? You know, and the answer is usually, oh, I threw like freaking hundreds of thousands of punches, and then that one time I hurt my hand. Mm -hmm. So the punching is invalid now. And then, on top of that, did that injury stop? Was it in a self-defense scenario? And did that one injury keep you from continuing to protect yourself? You know, you have fighters in the ring that break both hands. You know, your Faber is a famous one.
0: Yeah, you know, he
1: broke hands in a fight, and he just kept fighting,
0: I'm fighting because dude. Yeah.
1: So all of a sudden, though, the 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 self-defense world has created this weird mythology that it's bad to hit with an open hand or bad to hit with a close fist. It's it's not really bad to hit with a close fist, it's bad to hit the wrong spot with a close fist. But that's, you know, it's bad to headbutt anything at the, the, the wrong thing, you know? It's bad to palm strike the wrong thing at the wrong time.
0: How about it's bad, in general, to fight unless you absolutely have to, and... I,
1: let's start with that. Let's
0: yes. just start there, and everything after that is gonna be pretty much okay. bad for you, regardless, unless you, you know, but everything's better than dying. <laughs>
1: So let's let's talk about it now. So we're we're talking about fists and punching. Punching has changed because of the invention of the boxing glove. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of people are, are uh, you know. You got to remember, uh, if there was such a big rate of you know, bad injury to our hands every time we punched. We would have evolved ourselves out of punching with fists many, many centuries ago. You know, it's not like all of a sudden, oh, we're so much smarter now in modern society that we have just now figured out that we shouldn't punch. We would have evolved out of punching so many, unless you're one of these people that believe that we've only been around here for like a thousand years or whatever that is, Uh you know, these delusional people. Flatterst but people. we've been around for a long, long, long time, and we've been using, you know, close fists and punching and, and doing all kinds of stuff, so we would have evolved ourselves out of that a long time ago, you know, you know, out of the punching. If if the rate of injury to the frequency of use was that much, was that terrible, we would have evolved out of punching a long, long time ago. Mm,
0: that's a good point. So... We had, we had we had kind of talked about sports science last time when we got off, and there were some, some things that we wanted to talk about, particularly like using sports science you know for you know self-defense self or and even addressing the idea of sport and its relation to real fighting. And, you know like within self-defense world, there's these weird like some people like really like self, like sports as a modality. To help self-defense, other people are like, you know, well, there's no sparring in the streets and things of that nature. But you have some science to kind of at least back up some of the sport principles that might be applicable. And I know i know it's going to leave the leave the floor sure. to you for that.
1: So uh, what's really interesting is is that there these camps that divide everything. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, oh, you only do sport this so you know, then you have the self-defense camp on the other side and you know, they're saying you guys suck. No, you guys suck. Instead of going, what are the things that we can use from each other's, you know, camps? So there's a lot of things in sports training, uh, that are or would be beneficial if more self-defense instructors use them. Uh, now as far as your clients, if, if a uh, student needs to learn self-protection, we can put them through a protocol, we can put them th- through training exercises, etc. They don't really need to know the sports science behind it. You know, they just, they just want to learn how to protect themselves. They don't need to know, learn the sports science behind it, but it would behoove more instructors to understand how uh, sports training methodologies and the most recent sports science can help us uh, improve the way we train our students. So, so one of the things, uh, uh, we're, we're looking at here is how, how can we, you know, make sure that we understand, uh, some things that sports have discovered a long time ago that perhaps martial arts and self protection training should start using. So one of the things that, that, uh, uh, some some uh, martial arts do it intuitively, some combat sports do it intuitively, or it's part of the culture that i like to, uh, you know, emphasize. The first thing is that you want things that are similar to your activity, but you don't want them too similar to the actual activity because they end up being a little bit hazardous to your health or maybe even counterproductive. And we can use the example, you know, you've been Thai boxing for a long time. Uh, you know, those guys, you know, how how hard do you spar every day? And the answer should be not very every day. Mm-hmm. You do have hard sparring incorporated into your training plan, but you can't do that every day. If you were sparring the same way you're going to fight every day, the, the deterioration that that would have on your body and, you know, and just the, the kind of productiveness overall would overcome any benefits that you would be getting from your hard sparring. So, uh, but then there's other little things that that people need to think about. So, like, for example, uh, uh, you know, training with weights in your hands. Uh, You know, that's good for shadow boxing. Only if you do it once or twice a week, maybe tops. You don't want to do that, you know, and again, sports science has figured this out a long time ago. I don't know why people in modern, you know, athletics haven't figured it out or or in modern martial arts haven't really applied this. So they figured out that uh, if if the movement that I use for my conditioning is identical to the movement that I'm going to be using in my fight, then my body actually becomes specialized at at moving with those weights in my hands. So for example, if I shadow uh, Box with weights in my hands all the time, and I do it, you know, on a regular basis, every day, all day, every day. My body mind system actually gets better at fighting with weights in my hand than at not fighting with when the weights are gone. Right. And again, so little things like that uh, are are the things that that uh, sports science is ahead uh, ahead of us by you know you know decades and decades little things that we should be able to adopt
0: you yeah, know there's the novelty of that experience that could have a positive stimulus for your growth but yep. after a while you're basically just getting good at that thing you're not really getting the stimulus that was going to help you for your intended goal
1: exactly so so what uh as we as we're getting deeper and deeper and and uh, uh, there's a little interesting progression that, that an author uh, put forth, and the author's name escapes me. But, uh, you know, when, when sports teams became a thing in the United States, you know, several decades ago, the, uh, when, you know, it became a market and, you know, it became a multi-gazillion dollar industry, uh, they started bringing in, you know, first they, they started bringing in uh, your your uh, strength and conditioning coaches and, and things like that. Then they started bringing in uh, yoga instructors and dance instructors. And at some point they even had martial like Dallas Cowboys, I, th- I believe in the 70s, early 80s, they were bringing in Gurudan and Santo and they were bringing in, you know, martial artists to learn uh, certain things. And uh, uh, you know, and eventually the progression now is that now the the newest wave of what they're bringing in is neuroscience, and uh, that's where everything I think uh, might be a uh, it's going to be a good turning point for us as martial artists and self-defense instructors to start looking at the science of the brain and how the brain learns and how it learns how to do certain things in order to improve the way our training methodology. Again, this can all be invisible to our students. It doesn't have to, you know, we don't have to tell the students, oh, this exercise we're doing here now is because this part of your brain does X, Y, Z, and this is how we're gonna learn, blah, blah, blah. Your student doesn't need to learn any of that. They just need to do the drill. However, understanding why some of this stuff is around now uh, is is very important. So I'm going to use this example, uh, uh, again, this is uh, uh, from baseball because baseball has been around for a hundred some odd years and they're also now using neuroscience. So let's start with the fact that, uh, and I believe I, I've addressed this before, I know I, I talk about these things all the time, so I don't even know if I've, Dress them with you, but you know the the uh, the pitcher's mound is about I think it's 90 feet away from home plate, and you have guys that are are pitching now. You know, 90 plus mile an hour curveballs, fastballs are even closer to the hundreds. You know, 100 mile an hour range, etc. And if you look at how you know how far that ball can travel. And the way our brain perceives the action or or the ball's movement and says, hey, there's a ball coming this way. Maybe I should do something. Uh, Reaction time being 0.25 seconds and all that stuff. It would be impossible. It's literally impossible for anybody to wait for the ball to leave the pitcher's hand and go, here comes the ball. I'm going to hit it now. Mm -hmm. It's literally impossible. So they've been doing studies on, well, how do people hit the ball, right? And even a good hitter now is what? You know, three out of ten balls. Yeah. You know, if you're, you're a pro. Mm-hmm. You're in the big leagues if you hit three out of ten balls. So the, the belief was, well, it's hand-eye coordination. You know, it's, it's what we can see and how we can make our, our bat move or whatever it is. That was the belief because somebody back in, I think it was the 30s, they did a study on Babe Ruth, and, you know, they, their assumption was, well, he can see the ball better than every anybody else. Hmm. So, uh, anyway, so the, the answer back then was let's make more Babe Ruths, but, you know, you look at Babe Ruth, it was a big guy, kind of big belly or whatever. So let's go to last year, right? So we got 2017. The American League, the the two top hitters in the American League, right? One of them was a guy, his last name was Altuve, or his. He might be alive still. Mm. But he had a little Venezuelan. He was five foot six, 165 pounds, and he was an infielder. Okay? The other guy that was in contention for the best hitter last year in the American League was a guy last name is Judge and he was a Californian, six foot seven, two hundred and eighty two pounds, and he's an outfielder. But both of these guys were hammering balls, right and left, you know, getting their hits, getting their home runs, etc. They, they were the top guys, top hitters in, in the league. Wow. So the little guy and the big guy be the best hitters. So it's obviously not a a physical characteristic that connects them both. Yeah. So, the next assumption would be, well, maybe it's vision, you know. So it's uh, they, you know they've done studies again using baseball as an example because it's uh, a sport that's been using neuroscience for for a while now, and, and they're uh, they're really delving into this area. They started uh, doing studies. Uh, there's this guy Ramirez. He's uh, I think he's uh, I forget what team he's on. But you know, portly kind of dude. You know, if you look at baseball, baseball has all kinds of guys that are mm-hmm. good at baseball. Right? You have guys that look like total freaking jocks. There are guys that were jocks with Mexican supplements added <laughs> to the day, okay? and uh, you know. But there are guys that are just kind of normal looking and even dumpy and dorky looking, but they're good at baseball. So they did a study on this guy, uh, this particular team. And uh, they, they were trying to figure out why this portly, kind of chunky Ramirez guy was so good at freaking hitting, right? Yeah. And uh, they checked everybody's vision, and he did not have the best vision. You know, you know they did the regular eye test where uh, I think they say the average uh, uh, on a good team. The average vision is like 20/12 without correction, so they do have good eyes. They they do have good eyesight, but this guy poor eyesight than everybody else in the team. Hmm. But they they did some experiments with him where they would actually you know with with nerf balls and contraptions they would you know throw the ball they would throw this ball at him and say catch it and he would catch it right and, and then they say they would add more complexity he says only catch you know, this color ball. And he was like perfect every time. And, uh, they would say, okay, so now we're going to take the color out of the equation. We're going to have a ring with four balls on it. We're going to throw it. And after we throw it, we're going to tell you, uh, they had subtly painted the patterns on the ball, what it would look like, uh, the thread spinning. If it was a curve ball, if it was a fastball, if it was, a, Mm. it's, a. Very subtle tactic that they use, and uh, they would throw this contraption at him and they say, Catch the curveball, and he would without fail. It wasn't that he was he had better eyes, it was another process behind just merely looking that was that was better in him, Mm. and it's it was his connection of recognizing what was being thrown and his ability to decide. I'm not gonna bat because you know neurologically, taking no action they found was uh, actually firing uh, things in in people's brains. So you can sit there and look at something, and to decide not to do something about it actually fires you know neurons and things like that. So action. taking action <laughs> is literally an action. In Fascinating. Neurons. So so how do we apply? So so we understand. The, the first thing is that, and then of course there's the myths and the stories of the old grandmasters. You know, you got this really old guy that appears frail, not strong, but some young guy comes at him and that old guy is able to somehow, you know, block the punch or do whatever. So it's not because of his physical attributes. Something else is more enduring and more important in the way they train. And it's, Not only uh, how we perceive things, but how we make, how does our brain make these decisions? So what what leads me to believe is if I'm training somebody to protect themselves, you know, how does a punch, which is, you know, many times slower than a fastball. Mm -hmm. How does a telegraph punch from some fucking random dude in a street fight? How does that get through? Yeah, yeah, you know, and yeah. You know, people get knocked out with punches like that all the time. So it's not about the speed of the punch. It's not about the telegraphing of the punch. It's not about any of those things. It's about the ability of that person to recognize and you know what the trajectory is and and what is actually happening. And of course, there's other elements. You know, we've already talked about prevention and, and how do we create natural obstacles to whatever is happening to us. But again, it's not about how fast I can make this person hit, although that will help. It's not about how strong I can make this person, although that will help. Yeah. It's, it's about perception and the quote-unquote, I hate the word decision-making because we've already talked about, you know, fighting is not a decision-making process, it's a performance. So how do we get people to perform better? under those pressure circumstances? And the answer is in training your brain more than just training your body. And a lot of times, what some martial arts and some self-defense styles fall victim to is, a lot of times, some of the physical drills that they do to train your physical body do train your brain a little bit. But, you know, we're kind of like, it's kind of like we're we're eating the entire orange instead of just squeezing the juice, which is what we really want, right? Mm-hmm. We're eating the seeds, we're eating the the grind and the, and the, the peel and the rind and all that stuff yeah. instead of getting the juice. So the mm-hmm. juice is we need to train our brains more, and you know not necessarily train our bodies less, but give our bodies a little bit of a break by training our bodies, more, our brains more.
0: Yeah. And that definitely leads to a lot more longevity when you're talking about preserving the body. If you can actually increase your ability, your survivability, and your thrivability in a fighting situation by training aspects of yourself that don't require a, a beating of your physical being, then you have a lot more longevity in whatever you do. And it's just training. This is like anything else. Like if we, you know, if we're going to get a strength and conditioning coach, and we're going to get a boxing coach, and we're going to get a you know whatever. Makes sense to train the neurological aspect of yourself as a separate entity too. And I always thought, like, I remember going to uh, a Dutch kickboxing gym, and I was, and I asked the guy because all they wanted, all they cared about was like just fighting people. And I was like, yeah, what do you guys think about like you know developing character development? And he was like, well, you know, as a result of fighting people and, and, and dealing with adversity, yeah, you're gonna become a stronger person. It's just not my, my 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 focus. It's like so yeah, you're getting a little bit of character development just as a byproduct of being pushed, yeah. but it's not yeah. an intentional thing. And people who are more intentional about it will develop that aspect of it better exactly. makes with neuroscience.
1: Yeah. Why not, you know, why not dedicate some time to character development and why not talk about if if you're if you're saying that you're a character development school, do you ever sit down and talk to people about courage and how can courage be developed? And if you're talking about you know uh, self defense is ninety percent mental, are you actually sitting with your students and going through some mental training uh, with and saying you know uh, how, how to deal with this kind of interpersonal conflict? And if you're not doing that, then you're just kind of saying well. Uh, the reason you're, you know, uh, martial arts makes you so tired that you're nicer to people because you're so tired that you don't have energy to be angry with them. <laughs> yeah. That's basically what you're doing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There there was some truth in that growing up. I was like, man, I would bounce. I would, go to, I would come out of the fight training and having you, like, beat the shit out of me on pads, and I would go, like, bounce at, like, the edge or something down to Virginia Beach. And I was like, I don't feel like fighting anybody. Like, i yeah. will buy a guy oh, a drink wow. before if I fight to do because I'm exhausted right now. <laughs> Plus, I didn't want to fight anyone anyway. But. So what what um, what got you into the neuroscience aspect of it? Was it just uh, was it, this is more recent or are you spending more time in it recently?
1: Well, I've, I've been doing I've, I've been messing around with that with this stuff or, or researching ways to, to improve, uh, you know, the performance of my students for, for a while. And, uh, neuroscience specifically started creeping its way into when, when I looked at, uh, uh, on one of our previous podcasts, we talked about that 11 minute principle. And, uh, you know, when I really started looking at sports training and, uh, how, how it could benefit, uh, you know, our, our, uh, martial arts or, or our, uh, self-defense training, self-protection training, uh, neuroscience just started. Being, uh, you know, I had already studied uh, Jonah Lehrer and a bunch of other people on decision-making processes and how, you know, uh, the, your your ability to make instant split decisions instinctively, intuitively, and how that combines with precognitive processing and, and all these other things that that are out there. Um, once I started looking at that, then I started just making sure that I had uh, I dedicate Time to any any type of research that comes out in that area that I think is going to help me. I'll go ahead and take the time to read it and, and look into it. So it's been a while since I've integrated it. Uh, it just it just keeps refining itself because again, uh, new new science uh, comes along. Uh, there's the uh, the Quiet Eye technology. I think I've, we've talked a little bit about that before. I don't know. Where, what is that? Where, so we know that uh, so we're going to go back to this thing we know that it's not how good your vision is but how how you process the information your vision is capturing etc and uh, uh, Dr. Jane Vickers uh, did a study originally it was with uh, tennis players uh, and it's the same thing you know a tennis serve is 100 plus miles an hour and you know the, the other guy on you know, you're on the other side of the court. There was no way that, just based on action reaction, uh, the action reaction formula. You know, the ball hits the racket, and now I'm going to decide where I think that ball is going to go. There was no way, uh, given how fast our nerves conduct and our brain, how long it takes to process information, etc. It would be impossible for anybody to answer a tennis serve. You know. And even nowadays, it's pretty hard. You know, every once in a while, somebody gets an ace. That serve goes right by you, right? Mm-hmm. So she started doing a study with tennis players where she would show a film of serves and basically at different stages of the serve, and they would have to guess, oh, this, is, uh, this ball is going to land in this part of the court or whatever. And what she started realizing is that the most accurate predictions uh, or the the accuracy of the predictions was immense before the ball even touched the racket so they were basing their decisions on the server's movement not on the trajectory of the ball after it hit the racket oh so, Started realizing that people were using precognitive processing, and the same thing happened with the baseball studies. People started realizing these. They they started putting uh, uh, these farm teams that are, you know, getting kids from freaking Venezuela to come to play less than double A baseball over here, or whatever. They started, and part of the recruiting process, they started putting uh, EEG receptors on, on these on these kids you know, they're 14, 15, 16 years old, or whatever, and they would show them, uh, they're showing them uh, on a computer screen, they're showing them pitches, and uh, part of their job is to say, oh, that's a curveball, and I would hit it, or, you know, it's they have, they have to answer certain things very quickly based on what they're seeing on this film. And what they started realizing is that, you know, these people are not waiting for the ball to get released, from the pitcher's hand before they go here, they're actually making some decisions based on the motion of the pitcher. Mm. They, they start picking up things on the motion of the pitcher, and that, that helps them decide, etc. So, hmm. uh, so, this doctor, uh, Jane Vickers, started doing the research on that, and uh, then she started uh, once she realized that people were making these decisions uh, or these performances, like I like to call them, uh, based on the movement of the athlete before even the ball left the racket, uh, she uh, she started uh, setting up uh, these special cameras that track eye movement and. Basically, what she started noticing is that the guys that were the most proficient The eyes were more calm or as she likes to call them. They were quieter mm. because they would only look at very relevant information rather than the minutiae that didn't matter mm. okay? okay The same thing she actually did this study. They they set them up uh, They set up these these eye movement detectors on a bunch of police officers And they would put them in a scenario that they would have to try to respond appropriately. And again, the rookies, they started tracking their eye movement. Their rookies' eye movements were all over the place. And most of the people that failed the scenario and failed to respond properly, uh, their eyes were all over the place. Whereas the people that successfully navigated the scenario, their eye movement was a lot more calmer, looking at very specific things. And those things were usually would match from, you know, uh, experienced police officer A to experienced police officer B their movements were nearly identical they were tracking the same things that were very relevant to that particular scenario so we know that vision and, and not just n- not the accuracy of your vision but the the way you decide to look at things mm-hmm. and the way you make uh, you perform based on that information is very important so that means that training has to include a lot of visual cues for us and if visual cues are helpful then so are auditory cues and things like that. We need to make sure that all of those things are playing a part in our training.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's that, that, that makes a lot of sense because I remember when I first started training and I was watching boxing fights, I remember thinking like there's no freaking way somebody can see a punch moving that fast. And slip and then counter and all that. I was like, these guys must be like superhumans. Then after twenty years of, of training, it's like I'm not waiting for the punch to get to my head. Like based upon the positioning of their body, I can kind of predict where that punch is going to be or what punch they're going to use before they've even thrown it. Sometimes even before they even realize they're gonna throw it. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Like I remember uh you remember Kevin Hall? Yeah. Yeah, he was a boxer. if guys don't know who he is. He was a boxer. He used to train in our gym. Um, yeah. Crazy redhead, dude. He hit like a fucking truck, man. Uh, he,
1: did, he had some freaking hammers.
0: Oh my God. Just bricks. Just like big old Irish bombs on his hand. I guess he was Irish. I might, I might have made a stereotype there. He's a red redhead white dude. <laughs> cool. but, uh, but I remember the first time. Like it was like my first year ever there and I was sparring with him boxing. And I remember like thinking jab and him punching me in the head. Like I would think about, I'm gonna jab now, and he would punch me in the head before I could go, I'm gonna. And I'm like, dude, are you reading my mind? It's like, no, but every time you go to throw your jab, your elbow pops out. I was like, but I didn't even throw the jab yet. It's like, I know. It was a pre-cue that he saw like a mile away because he's boxed his entire life. And uh, made, that made a lot of sense to me.
1: So in that, again, and that gives you two sides of the equation. You know, How do I make my movement a little bit more deceptive? Does it really need to be super deceptive in, in, a, in a self-protection context? You know, there, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, things about you know telegraphing and not telegraphing. Uh, so you know, people telegraph their punches all the time in real fights. They telegraph their tackles, et cetera, but they still get through. So there are other factors involved, and a lot of it, I think, is the lack of proper visual or I should say proper mental training as far as the mental connection of watching you know enough sloppy punches come at you watching enough sloppy tackles come at you watching you know having in training having somebody replicate that crazy weird aggression that you see in a real fight you know so so let's look at so for example uh, as much as I I love boxing, you know we, we we've trained in it a bunch of times, and I still you know every once in a while I throw the gloves with my students and we do standard regular boxing. I like to do asymmetrical boxing where we have one guy ha- gets gets to pick the three main ways that that bad guys punch you in a real fight, and that's all he gets. So what are those three ways? Yeah, and again, you know if we, if we look at If we're honest with ourselves uh, and we look at the kind of fights that we're getting into and and we superimpose that to how those people are are attacking if it's a fight for your life where somebody is trying to end me Mm -hmm. you know for whatever reason it is again let's take out the why all of this happened out of the equation momentarily but there's Bad guy A wants to end my life or end somebody else's life and he happens to be unarmed Okay, so how does somebody like that punch and I find without almost with with almost uh, 100% accuracy that they use what's called repeated dominant arm punches until that particular hand either gets exhausted or they find that it's not working the right way they might switch to using their other hand. But it's repeated dominant arm punching is almost to a T, the the predator on victim type of attack. Uh, So if you're not training against that during your your, uh, self-defense training, you're not training properly. You have to prepare yourself. You have to get one of your guys you know, and again, you don't have to jump in with both feet you know, oh, let's do it at 100% speed, 100% power from the go. You have to analyze the trajectory, how to, you know, some people punch a little bit straighter. Sometimes uh, they punch with a little bit more curve. Some people uh, throw different trajectories in the process of repeated thumb and arm punches. So you'll see them come with a slightly over angle, slightly horizontal or slightly under angle, etc. So you have to break that down. That doesn't mean that everybody punches the exact same way. But that general behavior of they grab you or they shove you or they push you and then they try to repeatedly hit you with that one hand, if you're not working uh, how to protect yourself against an attack like that, then you miss a big part of Mm self-protection. The other uh, common way uh, people punch, so now we're talking about maybe a little bit of ego-based punching is what I like to call the forward windmill, that means the guy punches down. That doesn't mean a lot of people think it's just the the arms are straight and they're doing this. And again, we're, we're on a bad video camera now, so I mm-hmm. can't really for you. But that's where the, the forward windmill to me is when the person kind of, uh, the quote-unquote, they bite down on their mouth guard, as they, they used to say, they put their head forward, their axis forward, and now they're throwing punches with both hands. Now, those punches may be a little bit straighter, a little bit more curved, but... And, and they throw them at a, at a weird rhythm. Sometimes they'll throw their right a couple of times before they throw a left. And then they'll continue right, left, right, left. Or sometimes in, somewhere in there, they, they'll throw a couple more lefts than rights. But the idea is they're kind of moving forward with that forward windmill. In other words, they're aggressively punching you with both hands. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the predatory one is one hand, repeated dominant arm punches. Uh, if we're getting into a little bit more of an ego fight, uh, then we're talking about the, the capability of the, the person trying to use both arms. And again, with a lot of forward movement uh, and sometimes with breaks in the action. And then the other one is the reverse windmill. Reverse windmill is just more characterized by somebody that's a little bit more worried about getting hit. So they'll try to keep their head out of range and they'll throw punches with either hand from kind of like a axis either completely straight or backwards. So if you're not covering those three types of, of uh, punching attacks as part of how you're deal- teaching your self-protection training, then you're not really covering self-protection training because you can watch those types of, of attacks over and over in modern CCTV, in police dash cams, etc. So you have to train against guys like that. And, of course, if you're covered all those bases, then you want to start your boxing training as well. Mm. Yeah. Because if you want to punch, you want to punch better than the other guy, obviously. And, and that's where you want to look at things like that. Again, it's just prioritizing, you know, what are your students trying to learn? So, for example, if, I, if a student of mine is saying, hey, I want to learn just for self-protection, and on my first class, I'm showing him how to parry a jab. I have failed as an instructor.
0: Yeah, make a good point. That's
1: not gonna see more than likely in a street fight.
0: That's a good point. That's a, that's probably the last punch you're generally gonna see, unless you pick the fight with a freaking boxer, and then why the hell you find that guy?
1: <laughs> they have made a lot of bad life choices. <laughs> where the first punch thrown is a clean, freaking, super fast jab. Yeah. You made a lot of really bad choices. Yeah. So. And that's what I'm looking at. That doesn't mean that they don't ever learn the jab or how to protect themselves from the jab. They eventually do. But I want to cover the basis of what they're going to more than likely see in their particular self-defense scenario. And, you know, then you start, you have to look at what's the, who am I training? Is it the average male? Sure, they're going to get into a little bit more ego-based fights than the average female. The average female is probably going to be more victimized by a male or even a loved one or, or something like that. So we start training. you know, somebody that's a female wants to learn strictly self-defense. You have to address slightly different issues. You know, and my answer to them can't be, well, I'm going to teach you how to punch really hard with your right hand, you know, over and over again, because that's what you're going to do. It, it changes You know, depending on who your you know who your your student or your client is uh, is gonna determine how you should be training. Yeah, makes sense, man.
0: Where um, you know, where can people get it? First of all, what's coming up with you next? Do you have any opportunities for people to come train with you coming up?
1: Well, I, I'm at the school right now. I, I don't have any uh, courses uh, booked right this second. Uh, I do have a couple of events that I have to attend for, for uh, Defense Lab. Uh, we have the, the, uh, May, the big uh, United States Instructor Conference for Defense Lab in uh, Jacksonville coming up at the end of September, September 28th, 29th. Uh, that is open to the public, even though they, there's going to be instructor training days, et cetera. There's, there's, uh, you, know, you can look it up, www.defenselab.com. Uh, but uh, as far as uh, training events, we're trying to set up a, uh, an event in the U.K. coming up. Uh, and as soon as dates for that uh, come up for my buddy, Jer, then we'll, we'll, get, we'll get on it.
0: Yeah, and also, if you guys are coming to Costa Rica... Oh, that's I'm sorry. Yeah, December first to eight. Tony's gonna be there teaching, yes. and hanging that's out with it. us. Yeah, Costa Rica, yeah. Else, we're gonna have a it's really nice. good. Yeah. So yeah, there's that one, <laughs> <laughs> the most important one. Yeah, no, it's not important, but I mean, yeah, that's gonna be fun. That, I mean, I'm looking forward to that just for my, my own, my own selfish reasons, get a chance to hang out with you and get some some training in a really uh, cool environment. So it'll be a good All time. Right. Yeah. All right.
1: Yeah, straighten my Thai boxing out from you so
0: yeah be good stuff man we won't focus too much on the jab I'm kidding no <laughs> we might do a jab Box, Thai boxers don't really jab a whole lot anyway <laughs> I've heard Thais actually say like oh the jab's useless and then some jabs some of them think that
1: it's cool whatever and again you know once you start getting into things like that and, and, and you know the, the sport I think having a, a really good jab is important having a freaking phenomenal out of control jab like somebody like Sugar Ray or, or uh uh gsp you know that has that freaking jab it's even better but then you you got to look at you know how much time you're dedicating to that if you're an athlete you're competing in mma and boxing then absolutely go ahead and and go for that uh but you know somebody like me i just need a decent jab i don't need a freaking phenomenal jab i just need a decent one
0: yeah yeah but yeah exactly exactly it's just you know prioritizing what our what our goals are you know well, that's cool, man. I really appreciate you having me. Of course, we'll we'll have you back. We've still got way more to, to go, but we'll keep it short for and sure. digestible for people. And then uh, yeah. once they digest this, we'll, we'll give them a little bit more uh, of your wisdom and knowledge. I really appreciate you making time to come on the show again, brother.
1: Uh, thank you for uh, having me, as uh, always.
0: Remember, everybody, you are a fighter of the day you decide to become one. And today might be that day. Stay focused, everyone. Take care. This has been another great episode of The Fight Focus. For show notes and links, visit us on the web at That's www.thefightfocus.libsyn.com. You can always check us out on Spotify and iTunes as well. Go to any of those pages, like, comment, subscribe, and share. Thank you for the support, everyone.